This is a thriller. It's the story of an FBI agent and a homicide detective working together to catch a serial killer. A serial killer with a chilling perspective on killing. He likened it to preparing a nice meal, discovering the perfect recipe, gathering ingredients, prepping, cooking, all steps leading to the piece de resistance. Afterward, cleanup. Not a fun task, but essential, necessary. That's what killing was to him, the necessary cleanup after a big event. That's narrator Aaron DeWard, bringing all the chills and characters to life in your ear. You'll hear about how she does that, and you'll hear from the delightful author, Leanne Kale Sparks. Yeah, you really get into the mind of a serial killer, and I'm like, do I? Okay. <laughs> We're talking about the thriller, The Wrong Woman, on this Desideratum. A desideratum is an essential thing. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, and I found so many essential things in this conversation with author Leanne Sparks and narrator Aaron DeWard. Before we begin, I want to sincerely thank this episode's sponsor, Dreamscape. Thanks to Dreamscape Media, you'll hear several tense moments from the audiobook. Dreamscape is an independent, award-winning audiobook publisher. I'll give you a way to get best-selling audiobook deals and giveaways from Dreamscape after our conversation, where we're going to talk about where the woulda, coulda, shoulda reactions play out in a crime story, and why Aaron and Leanne are drawn to this kind of storytelling. And, you know, I mean, it's just kind of grotesque to think about somebody going, really, you're talking about torturing and killing a person and you're thinking about oh this is like cooking a meal yeah grotesque is a good word and that's where I wanted to bring Erin in because she captures the sinisterness of this with a great believability so when he's talking about what's essential to him basically killing is essential to him I believed it well when I first started prepping the book, which is the pre-reading and taking notes and 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 developing characters, uh, I fell in love with him. I I he who I so here's the thing, right? When you watch videos of Ted Bundy or you watch videos of um Jeffrey Dahmer or you know, uh they are very matter-of-fact about what their lives are like. And Ted Bundy is, he's known for his charisma. And he is, he comes off as an intelligent, attractive, um, funny, charming man. And he just happens to have this predilection for killing. And, and if you watched Dexter, you see that also, right? So I feel like he was so easy to sink into like that the first line you know people people think serial killers it's all about killing yeah it's not 
it's really about the hunt. You know, it's about the finding your target and and following them and figuring out the puzzle of how to get to them. And I mean, who wouldn't want to act that part? Yes, it is. It's funny because that's also sort of, that's part of your bio, I think, is how you, Aaron, um, enjoy scare um, and sinister. Horror. Horror, yeah. I do. And the, and the reason behind that, when I was eight and I was visiting my sister in Minneapolis and my nephew, my, my sister's oldest son, is two years older than I am. And they dropped us at the movie theater and they said to Tim, take Aaron to see Cinderella. And he said, OK. But he took me to see Soylent Green. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a little different. An early introduction to the idea of sinister. Yes. Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I think that's also part of Leanne's website is your that you have returned to your first love writing about murder, mayhem, and crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys are a good match in that category, I think. Well, they sent me three auditions for um, Dreamscape did for The Wrong Woman. And um, you actually did chapter one, with, with which was Kendall. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, yep. I think I listened to it like three times. And I was like, yeah, there's no doubt. This is it. This, she's, she is Kendall. She has gotten all the nuance and everything of, of Kendall. And it was, it was great. Yeah. That's a good feeling I can imagine for an author because all of the voices are in your head, but it really is sort of a translation when you hand that over to a narrator. Yeah. They have to interpret that for you. Right. We, we try really hard to hear. So in our prep, we try really hard to hear the author's voice and intent. It isn't our job to create something entirely new. It's our job to take the author's words and just breathe life into them as opposed to making them ours. They're still, they still belong to Leanne. I'm just a conduit. Yes. Yes. And what we were just talking about in terms of how well Leanne develops personality um, makes the job of the narrator so fun, right? Yeah. Because you're instantly dealing with very recognizable character traits, personalities. So one of the things that one of the first notes that I made about Kendall was had to do with eyes and it tied to the prologue. It just hit me listening. I was like, oh, oh, we're talking about how the eyes are this window. Like our killer in that very first thing makes a couple of references to like the first tell is in the eyes. She'd been fun. Her trusting nature was almost a turnoff at first until something sparked in her eyes. The eyes were always the first tell. The devastating awareness of danger moved through her body in a series of nervous quakes Twitches, hands into fists, ready to strike. Gaze frantic, searching for an escape. And then I think the first time we meet Kendall, she says something about this this child's eyes having more depth and experience than anyone her age should. And so it just, it struck me as a very fine detail 
I really would love to take credit for for saying, oh, yeah, that was totally intentional. This is Leanne talking. But I think it's all subconscious when you're writing it. It's certain things because um, and and you kind of sometimes you catch it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's going to tie in really well. And other times it just kind of comes out. And then later on, when you're when you're going through, you know, your second, third or 527th, read of it you're like oh hey look at what i did i didn't even realize i did that isn't that cool oh wow wow so yeah it's really it's that's me i mean i'm not saying other other writers but sometimes i'm just like i amaze myself that my my little brain is is way ahead of me (laughs) while i'm typing away and writing Later, Adam says, Adam makes a reference to the eyes. Adam says something about the stories, what you see in eyes and the stories that eyes tell. It was the third reference. It's funny that it wasn't a technique because I was like, oh, that was really striking. And I think everybody can identify that in, in real life. I think, and then I think that's, that's it because when you see somebody, typically that's the first thing you see. And eyes can, um, it, you can rarely fool people with your eyes. I mean, it's the one thing that, that gives away your, um, your personality or or what you're thinking, your inner voice comes through in your eyes. And so I think that that's very much something that everybody relates to. And so kind of making it relate to quote unquote, normal people. I don't know how normal Kendall and and, um, Adam are. (laughs) They're the crime solvers and they're trained to be perceptive. Yep. And we learn in that very prologue that our killer is also very perceptive. Yeah. And so they're evenly matched in this um, this game that they're playing, right? Yeah. 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 One of the questions I had for um, Aaron, also kind of about Kendall, is that there's a there's a moment where Kendall is playing Abba and in the book. And she turns it on and it's sort of, it's this so, it's kind of a contrast to her hard edges um, to learn this about her, but it also, again, made her seem really human. And, um, and I wondered what that means for you when there's a reference to music in the script, do you go and listen to that? Like, or does that help you flesh out a character to know this is their music taste? This is their soundtrack to life? So, you know, I've, this is off topic, but on topic. I, I study Shakespeare. That's what I do. One of the things that you you do when you're, when, well, and, and in any acting, but also particularly in Shakespeare because there's no subtext. So you go through and you make note of what everybody says about the person, what the person says about themselves, what environments the person, is, you know, finds themselves in and things like that. So you would do the same thing with a book like The Wrong Woman, right? Yes. Because this is why I love Leanne's writing. None of her characters are two-dimensional. None of them. All of them have multiple layers. And the idea that Kendall, who, you know, in the first few scenes comes off as this, you know, she's tough, she's matter-of-fact, but she loves deeply. She is wounded deeply. And she's lighthearted in the moments where she can be and i and and so it's a trap i think that a lot of us 
me included, fall into is that, you know, we decide someone is an archetype and then we play that archetype. But the fact is, human beings, there are no villains. There are no heroes. We're all just doing our best with our circumstances. And that means you have to be multi-layered. And Leanne is so good at dropping information about, you know, each of the characters that you come into, like each of them, not, you know, even the smaller characters, you get information about them that makes them not two-dimensional. And so Abba, I didn't listen to Abba, but I grew up listening to Abba. You know, I'm 59 years old. Abba was a big part of my life. <laughs> right. So I knew what it felt like to dance to ABBA. I knew what the the music um, brings up in me and my friends and even my children who are grown people now, how they react to it. Yeah, the next generation of ABBA fans, for sure. They're, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a salient enough reference that I think any reader, generationally, will know who that is. It's, um... This is Leanne chiming back in. It's actually funny because that is something that my daughters and, and I kind of bond on is, is ABBA. Like when they were home, especially during um, COVID, when um, my eldest daughter was in between master's and PhD, she got caught at our house. And so she, she lived with us for that year. And my other daughter lived um, close by. And so that was something that, you know, in the evenings when we're cooking and stuff, we were always listening to ABBA and of course the Mamma Mia that, you know, movies and stuff. And so I always like to kind of throw in a little bit of a of, of something that's completely not within what people would assume is their character. Because I do think that, like Erin was saying, everybody is multidimensional and multilayered and and I like, I like, I love creating characters that um, just kind of throw a loop every once in a while. And you're just like, wait, what? That, that doesn't fit with them. Cause it's like, of course not. That's what I love. I don't want it to fit into a box. Right. Yeah. That's exactly to Aaron's point that they don't fit into an archetype. They are multidimensional. Um, one of the characters is a detective, a homicide detective named Adam. And he ends up working with Kendall. One of the things that he said that I wrote down that I loved, I think it's right around the time he starts working with Kendall. He makes an observation about the first stage of grief, that it isn't maybe an official stage of grief, but that it should be because everyone does it. Um, that at some point when someone close to you dies unexpectedly, people believe that they're somehow, they could have done something differently. It was like this, uh, a could have, would have, should have. And again, you kind of, you thread that he makes the observation, but then when he's actually talking to people at the restaurant, like a couple of them actually do that. They're like, oh, I should have, I wish I'd washed her, walked her the car. I wish it, like, then you actually see it happen. Like first he tells you about it, right? You have him sort of explain it to the reader and then you, then it actually happens and you see people do it. And I just wondered where that came from, because I don't think I've ever read that the could have, would have, should have ought to be a part of it, but it's such a great observation from your detective right there about human nature in response to grief, right? Yeah, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> I think it's just natural. I mean, well, I watch a ton of true crime. So I think, and that's usually the family is always like, you know, if I would have 
just done this, if, you know, if I would have taken her call, um, if I would have, you know, decided to go out with her that night, if I hadn't let her do this, if I had let him do this, you know, if I had taken it a little bit more seriously, everybody gets bogged down by that. What, what could I have done that would have made it different? And you can, I mean, you can tie yourself up in knots because sometimes people go way back in history of, you know, when they did that, why didn't I do this? And I often think of um, when I was growing up, kids in trouble, um, it wasn't as readily accessible as it is now for, for children to get into therapy and things like that. And there was a definite stigma attached. If you had your kid in therapy, what are you doing wrong? And so I think that that's, that, that's something that I always think about is, is people always saying, well, we can't do that. And then later on in life, they're like, well, maybe if I had done that back here, then that would have changed the course. And then this wouldn't have happened. So I think it's a really, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to not get yourself looped into, but I think it's a, it's a very natural and human thing to do too. I think it also ties into that whole magical thinking thing that we humans do, that I have control over my universe, right? Yeah. So if I had just done that, then the outcome would have been different when in fact, you know, the things that we have control of are so, you know, the, the circle of those things is very small. And, you know, especially when it comes to the way children view the world, you know, magical thinking controls everything, but we don't always grow out of that. It just morphs. It morphs into something else. Well, I want to, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the other scenes that I have from Dreamscape, I do have the scene where she's searching the basement and she's discovering a secret room. She had made it toward the back of the room, along the row of stacked boxes, a barely discernible scrape in an arc came from under the boxes like the kind a door would make along an uneven floor. Kendall shoved her cell phone into her back pocket. The boxes had to be moved. She just hoped they weren't filled with books weighing a hundred pounds. Deep inhale. She grasped the top box and lifted. To her surprise and delight, it was light. Too light. She set it on the floor at her feet. She ripped the tape and opened it. Empty. She grabbed the next box, also empty. Well, logic would dictate, Kendall murmured. As she suspected, the bottom box was also empty. Fucking decoy boxes. Grabbing her cell phone again from her pocket, she shined the light on the wall. There you are. A white, flush-mounted door handle almost completely blended into the wall, in fact, Kendall would bet if she hadn't been intentionally looking for it, she might have overlooked it. Placing two fingertips under the metal semicircle, she felt for the latch. The lock disengaged. Kendall opened the door and felt along the wall for a light switch. A floor lamp turned on. Emily had been right. Kendall had found it. The secret room. This is why I love horror. This is why I love thrillers. This is Aaron talking. 
when your character is in a scene where there's discovery, you, you I put myself in the room. And as I'm talking, I'm I'm doing the actual thing that the character is doing. So if I'm feeling along a wall, I'm in my head, I'm I'm feeling along the wall and oh what's that that's a scene what you know I, i'm i'm just I, i'm just um sunk in is the only way i can describe it i just i just want to see what i see and smell what i smell and feel what i feel in reality you know and and let the words do the work yeah that's a beautiful way to explain it. I'm going to say, is that like the same for writing? I feel like it, that is why audiobooks are becoming so much more popular is because it is really hard to write that where it's not too slow that the that the reader is going to go, okay, yeah, we all know she's going to find the, the light switch, you know, the, you can actually hear it in her voice and feel it and know that feeling of, you know, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. And, you know, it's dark. This is weird. I don't know who's here, who's not. Where is everybody? I mean, especially coming into a secret room like that. And you're like, uh-oh, I'm not supposed to find this. And and her being able to really bring that tension into it and, and draw it out like that is really, it's what you want the reader to get or the listener to get. Yes. And to me, it seems like such a mirror of the process of you writing it. Right. Because you couldn't just, and now she found the secret room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there it is. Uh, you do this great thing where she, she's being observant and you're with her. That's the way you wrote it, you know? And so it's, it's so interesting to me the way that the great performance mirrors what I can only imagine is the writing process itself of, of that sort of reveal happening on the page for you, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and that comes after, you know, that's usually second, third pass through of because uh, when I write my first draft, it's, it's a lot like I, I, I joke with um, my family and my author friends that it's, it feels like a lot of Dick and Jane, you know, he said, she said, and I'm very dialogue heavy to where it's almost completely dialogue in the first draft. There's, you know, there's some actions, of course, that's usually when I go through and I'm like, okay, so this is how I want this to go. And how do you feel? And, you know, you've got to, you've got to be able to do that. But yeah, that's the, it's usually, I'm not getting this from what I'm writing. So how do I do that? Where do I go? And and that, that for me, that comes in the editing process of, of doing it. Also, I love that scene because she's already looked there. This is Aaron talking. She's already looked there, and then she goes around the house, and she finds nothing. But then she's like, mm, "Just look again," <laughs> and 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 so that that pull in her to the basement, you know, that she knows she has to go and look at it again. What could I have missed? One of the things that happened for me while I was reading it, and I think it was a combination again of the writing and the performance, is this. I was second guessing everything like that scene that we're just talking about. Kendall's like, mm, I don't know. Things are not what they seem. And you actually do that from the very first interaction Kendall has with this missing girl case. 
things are not what they seem. The initial response of everyone, including Kendall, is like, aha, this is the truth. And then you pretty quickly show us, uh, maybe something else is the truth. And so you kind of train us from the very beginning to be a little skeptical. And that works in the thriller aspect of this story so well. Like there's um there's a part of the story, and I don't think this gives too much away, where there's a trip to Telluride. And I am pretty convinced as the reader that something bad is going to happen in Telluride. And I don't know if you intended that for me to feel that like, it is. <laughs> I don't trust this, you know? And so I think you're playing with this idea of trust and truth. Yeah, it, it's fun because I, I love being, I love doing things like that in my books where it's like, you know, you get ramped up and you think, oh, this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. And then you don't. So then you become sort of this unreliable narrator because then you kind of, you know, oh, that was nothing, you know, but was this something? But then that was nothing. So maybe not. And so I, I and I think that's important to have various types of red herrings in a thriller. I don't think a red herring is just um, a, a person, you know, oh, it could be this person, or it could be that person. It's also a circumstance. That's why my um, my desk is, I have a super long two-person desk and sticky notes. And that's why I, I move them all over the place. <laughs> I'm like, wait, no, wait, let's do this over here instead. Oh, that's so interesting. You create a physical map. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I do. Oh, wow. I do. and But I also have um, lots of uh, whiteboards up that I kind of try to go chapter by chapter and and when I'm first like figuring out what's going on because I'm I very much am a plotter I'm not so there's a lot of my author friends I don't know how they do it when they're writing thrillers that just do it um by the seat of their pants they don't know how it's going to end they just kind of write it and kind of have this kind of outline of where they're going to go and I'm just like I, I that just like freaks me out if I don't know what what's happening where I'm supposed to go next which is funny because a lot of times I do take these little divergence. I mean, there's a lot of things in The Wrong Woman that weren't originally in there. Um, the, the the brothers, actually, Gwen's brothers, they were never supposed to be as, as big as they were. The other note I had about narration had to do with character voices, actually, because I don't think you do, Aaron voices so much as we do. You, you give us a sense of personality in your intonation, maybe, or your uh, your rhythm, like you're doing things with rhythm some, with some characters, I think. Like you have Adam is, is an experienced detective, but we interact with other young officers a couple times and they would be in conversation and I knew exactly who was talking and how and why. And partly it's the quality of the dialogue, obviously, but but you do a good job. And literally the only difference between those two men, they were probably even close in age, was their experience level at their jobs. And you managed to imbue that in, into your voice. Detective, this is Officer Young. I'm not fucking on call. Uh, yes, sir, I realize that, but I found a vehicle that was reported stolen a couple of days ago. Fabulous. I'm sure the owners will be ecstatic to get it back. What does this have to do with me? The vehicle is related to a case you're working. Adam rolled onto his side and rested into his elbow. Which case? 
The vehicle belongs to Kendall Beck. Kendall Beck. You know what? There are narrators who are spectacular at creating character and giving them independent voices. And and there are there are narrators who don't give voices at all. And then there I fall somewhere I think in the middle. I'm not um I've never been the kind of person who could, you know, imitate someone's voice. I can't do it. Uh, I've tried. I'm terrible at accents for the same reason. Uh, but I feel like, you know, listening to Scott Brick was one of the things that made me feel okay about where I've landed as a narrator because he often doesn't um, give a change. He gives changes in rhythm, cadence, not so much placement in his body, but you know, maybe someone will be a little more in their mask. Someone will be a little more in their chest. But it's not, you know, he's not going full blown like a lot of the fantasy and uh, uh, lit RPG narrators do. And I want, when I narrate, I want to feel like the character. I don't want to be worrying about. Am I holding that accent? I want the person to have their own their own space, their own place, their own, I want them to, I want to feel like I'm them. Paul Rubin, who is a a Grammy winning audiobook director and also a very well-known audiobook coach and a delightful human being and also an author and just wonderful. Before I ever started narrating, I was recommended to him. I took a class with him And one of the first things he said to this class of narrators was, you know, let's say you're given a character who's a dragon. Don't play a dragon. Play the character. What are the actable emotions that that character feels? Don't don't take your voice here to be a dragon. If it's going to impact your ability to feel that the dragon is sad and lonely, that the, the most important thing is to have an emotional connection to the character and allow that character to speak through your mouth and to have those emotions that the character has rather than trying to sound like someone else. Yes. That is very, very well said. That makes perfect sense. And I think it. I think the people that you brought up, um, Scott Brick and Paul Rubin, are you know, like you said, sort of the goats. So go to that source as a like. This is where this is how I learned this. But I think also the point that I was trying to make was that I could distinguish them in my ear. The, where you know the intimacy of audiobook is that you, the narrator is right here with you, just me and you. And I knew when the younger officer was talking, there was no confusion in my head over whose voice was whose, even without a great um, taxation on your actual voice. I appreciate that. I really, really appreciate that. And I think that at the heart of that, I think, is acting. Your heart is obviously in, in the acting. I think that... Right before I started narrating, which was in 2015, um, I think that there was there began to be a shift to uh, m- 
more realistic acting in audiobooks and less readerly um, approaches. There are still some people who do more readerly approaches, but if you look at the audiobooks that are really flying these days, you know, uh, narrators like Bonnie Turpin, Marin Ireland, um, Ray Porter, um, you know, I, I could roll off a lot of names, but these people are actors who are acting. And and Andy Arndt and, you know, Vikas Adam, like these are people who are actors acting. I really think that some of what um, changed that it was um, duet narrations, dual narrations and cast, right? So the romance uh, arena started doing, du well, they had been doing duets for a while, but then they broke out into dual narration and it became more like an audio play at the same time that audio drama started to be uh, have a resurgence. So I think that we as a society now are wanting not just someone reading us a bedtime story. I think we want the movie in our head. Yes, we want something immersive. We really do. You are creating an immersive experience. That's That was sort of my point about how I am drawn in just you in my ear I agree completely with what you're saying about the movement towards more and more sound and music and multicast and um, stretching the actors to create everything in audio. And that's a that's a that's a trend that can be can be achieved with one narrator reading all the characters too. Though I think that the two things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. When you have a single actor who really understands the author's intent and the characters the author has created, you can have a very intense immersive experience without having a different voice for every character. It's fun. I think what audiobooks bring to the table also is um, it used to be reader and, and author kind of had this intimate experience um, of, of the storytelling. And now you bring in a you know an excellent uh, voice actress like Erin, and and then it just it expands that intimacy out, but it's still very much the reader. It's it's almost an enhancement to um, the the writer the writer's repertoire of, of being able to offer you know not just ebooks, not just you know paperback or hardcovers. Now you get audiobooks because. I mean, I pop in an audiobook whenever I'm doing the mundane housework, you know, because you can you can feel like you're you're able to sit and listen and do other things. Whereas when you're reading a book, you you sit and you get immersed in that because you're reading it. But in with an audiobook, you can still be doing other things and feel that immersion into the story and into the lives of the characters. So I'm gonna jump to what is usually my last questions, if you don't mind. I named this podcast Desideratum, which literally means an essential thing. And the, part of the reason was when I was growing up, there was a poem that my parents had hanging on the wall and I've ended up hanging it on my wall for my kids called Desiderata. And it was just full of life lessons, really essential things. And so I like to ask storytellers for you, and, and we'll start with Leanne, um, for you, if someone says, what? What for you is most essential? What do you think is essential? And you could answer as a, as an author, as a mom, as a, uh, 
as a lover of crime and murder and mayhem, um, any way you want. But so for you, what do you think is most essential? Ooh, um, I, I think just, I, there's so many things that people will, will say. I mean, a lot of times it's motherhood um, or it's, you know, this or that. I think it's really come, boils down to love. And it can be any type of love. It can be love for other people. It can be love for your family. It can be love for what you do in life. It can be love for reading. But I think that at least something in your life has to be powerful love so that, that you can experience that. So I think that's actually what's essential is, is some form of love, deep, um, a, a deep connecting love. To something or someone. Yeah. I love that answer. I think one of the things I love about it is that it really, um, I could hear Kendall giving that answer, actually. Like in, in this story, I think as hard as life has been for her and, and the challenges she continues to face with people that she loves, um, you, you created a character there that did find a love for what she's doing, a purpose in what she's doing, which was which was one of the things you listed in the what, how love is important. I, I really like that. Usually, usually people tell me they can only hear the sarcasm, me and the sarcasm of Kendall. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. So I'll let you have the final word then, Erin. So for you, what do you think? And and you've had a really um, you've had a long career of acting and bringing story to life. So I imagine story, you know, we've talked about things that are essential and performance and story is definitely part of that. But um, what else? What do you think if someone asks you what's essential? How do you how do you respond? Well, you know, uh, writers floor me because I don't even begin to understand how they have it in them to create what they create. I, I, you know, but I think as an actor performing someone else's writing. What makes for good storytelling is is believability. And I think for me personally, I life is hard. Being human is hard. And so characters who are struggling, who are on the brink whether it's the brink of life or the brink of a discovery or the, you know, they're they're right there at the edge of something, which we all can relate to. We all know what that feels like, the edge of something wonderful, the edge of something horrifying. That dancing on that, on that sword blade of 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 tipping or not tipping is such a human experience and not knowing what's on the other side, you know, knowing what came before, but not knowing what's happening if you tip over. That that feeling, that um, experience of being human is, for me, as a storyteller, is the thing that sinks me right in. I I wanna I wanna feel that discomfort. I wanna feel that excitement. I wanna feel that that terror. 
I, you know, I want to feel if you're tipping over into saying yes to love, you know, how terrifying that is. Um, so yeah, humans on the brink. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Leanne Sparks and Erin DeWard as much as I did. I want to thank the Colorado Sun for shining their light on Leanne Sparks' work. I listen to the Daily Sunup podcast, and on Sundays, check out the Sunlit features on authors put together by Sunlit editor Kevin Simpson. You can check it out at coloradosun.org or look for the Daily Sunup wherever you found this podcast. The Wrong Woman won the Colorado Book Award in the thriller category. I love that Colorado Humanities celebrates storytellers in my home state. You can find the winners and finalists in all the genre categories at coloradohumanities.org. A big thank you to author Leanne Kale Sparks, narrator Aaron DeWard, audiobook producer Eric Black, and all the fine folks at Dreamscape Media for bringing The Wrong Woman audiobook to life and sponsoring this episode. Dreamscape Media's catalog includes best-selling audiobooks, children's educational videos, prominent independent authors, and much, much more. I'm honored that they support this podcast, and I hope you'll connect with them. Please visit them at dreamscapepublishing.com. You can sign up for a weekly newsletter that has audiobook deals and giveaways. I'll put links to everyone I thanked in the show notes. And as always, thank you for listening.